0: Says, then Moses went up to God, the Lord called to him from the mountains, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the Israelites, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on angels wings or an eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession out of all people. Indeed, the whole earth is mine. If you're going to underline or highlight or or whatever, you're going to want to mark that line right there. The whole earth is mine, but you shall be for me a priestly kingdom, a holy nation. And these are the words that you shall speak to the Israelites. Let's pray. Lord would you help us this morning to look to your word for guidance for, those things that we typically don't think of as spiritual. Lord, would you give us wisdom? Would you give us your heart? Would you give us your word? Lord, would it lead and guide us and transform us this morning? In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You can be seated. So we're talking about money in the Bible because money's the second most talked about subject in the Bible. And today we're looking at the biblical figure of Moses. We're starting at the beginning of the Bible in the Torah, the first five books of the Hebrew law. I, I think that Pastor Katie taught the kids on Wednesday that those five books are also called the Pentateuch. And so they're the Pentateuch, the Torah, the first five books. They're the law of Moses. It is the, the word of God that God gave Moses as God was forming his people, the nation of Israel. Now, next week, we'll look at the prophets and money and what the Hebrew prophets had to say about money. And then in a couple of weeks, we'll look at what Jesus has to say about money. So we're going to hit the highlights of Scripture. But today, the Torah, the law, Moses, the first five books of the Hebrew Bible and what they say about money. Now, Exodus chapter 19 that we just read, that is Moses hearing from God on Mount Sinai. He has just led the people of Israel out of Egypt. They have just gone through the Red Sea. They have just recently been set free and they've gathered at the base of Mount Sinai. And Moses goes up on the mountain to receive instruction from the Lord. You guys remember this story in scripture. He's getting the download from God about the covenant that God was making with the people of Israel. Now, remember, Moses had had led Israel out of Egypt where they were oppressed in slavery. And what we find is after they cross the Red Sea and they spend time at the base of the mountain, Moses in the presence of God and God reveals to Moses that my purpose for Israel is much bigger than just freeing them from slavery. I have a much bigger purpose in mind for my people. God intends to make this group of former slaves into a new redemptive society, and he calls them a priestly kingdom. He says, I'm going to make you a kingdom of priests. The entire kingdom is made up of priests. Now, now priests are simply people who are, who their job is to call other people to know God. That's a priest's job is to uh, uh, to to uh, uh, call people to know God. And he says your entire nation is a people, a group of people called to the rest of the world to reveal who God is and call the world to know God for themselves, to call the rest of the world to experience the reality of who God is, to call the rest of the world to be reconciled to God. Now, in the New Testament, we see that this calling is ultimately fulfilled through Jesus. Jesus is a child of uh, the, the Israelite nation. He is a their Messiah, but he is the savior of the whole world. And so the way God is, what God is going to do is God is going to do more than simply just uh, uh, save Israel. He's going to use Israel and the, is the Messiah of Israel to save the whole world. The Apostle Peter quotes Exodus 19 when he says that in Christ, in Jesus, we are made into a priestly kingdom. He says, you are kings and you are priests. Twice in the book of Revelation, the saints of God are called the kingdom of priests. Now, to be a truly different kingdom, to be a truly different community than the world around us, it caused, it required Israel to have a different kind of economy. Because if they take the same ideas about money that they learned in Egypt, it won't be long before they end up looking just like Egypt. So to be a truly different society, a priestly kingdom, a kingdom that's called to to call the rest of the world to know God and to reveal God, they had to live differently than the Egypt they just came out of. So I want to share with you from the law of Moses, the first five books of the Hebrew Bible, the features of God's kingdom economy. Because if you look in the law, a lot of what God says about who Israel is, is you need to think differently about money than how you thought when you lived in Egypt. Number one, essential to this new kind of economy is the understanding that the whole earth is the Lord's. The whole earth is the Lord's. The land, what grows on the land, What lies beneath the land, the minerals, the gold, the silver, the oil, the coal, uh, the natural gas, it all belongs to the Lord. The air we breathe belongs to the Lord. In Exodus, we see the radical difference between the economy of Pharaoh and the economy of God. In Egypt, the people of Israel were victims to an oppressive economy. They were foreign immigrants who who were made who were required to provide free labor for the Pharaoh. They were enslaved. Their job was to make bricks, which was a huge industry as the Egyptian empire was growing and expanding. And when God delivered them, their economy is supposed to look different than the one that caused them to be slaves in the first place. They're supposed to be set free from Egypt, at least partially, and to be set free from Egypt, at least partially means to think about money differently than the Egyptians did. And listen, as believers, as followers of Jesus, you and I, we've been delivered from Egypt. Amen? We've had... Our own Red Sea experience. When you were baptized as a believer and a follower of Christ, that was your Red Sea experience. Just like they went through the water and left the enemy behind them and saw the promise in front of them. When you and I went through the waters of baptism as we followed Christ, we drowned some enemies in that water and we came up to a new life of promise and freedom in Jesus' name. Amen? And so in order to there's something we can learn from this because they had to live differently on the other side of their Red Sea experience. And you and I have to live differently than the world on the other side of our Red Sea experience. Now, there are two economies in the world. There's the economy of Pharaoh and there's the economy of God. Now, Pharaoh's economy is an economy that is driven by fear and greed. Fear and and greed there's a there's a constant fear of lack of not having enough and that fear breeds greed greed because we're never going to have enough and we've got to get more and if I don't get it someone else is going to get it if I don't get there first fear and greed drive pharaoh's economy fear and greed but the economy of god isn't driven by fear and greed instead god's economy is driven by trust and generosity Trust and generosity. Trust God because he's our provider and generosity because we're not clutching and we're not tight fisted. Instead, we have an open hand of generosity to those around us. Part of the reason that Israel spent 40 years in the wilderness before they experienced and entered the promised land was God was teaching them about trust and generosity. He was teaching them how to live by faith. He was teaching them to trust him as their provider. Remember, every time they got hungry, what did they say? We got to go back to Egypt where there's food. Where there's water and we've got to go back to that economy. We've got to, it's better off being slaves than being out here in the wilderness. And God says, no, you're going to stay here a little bit longer because you're going to learn that even in the wilderness where there are no stores, there's no Walmart, there's no, uh, there's, there's no, uh, uh, Crowley's to go get a sandwich at. There's no dollar general to run to. Even here, I am your provider. And if you will trust me and if you will not be tight fisted, but you will be generous to your neighbor, I'll give you more than enough. Pharaoh's philosophy. Economic philosophy is to love possessions and use money, love money, love wealth, love possessions, use people however you can to get more money and wealth and possessions. The goal is increase is wealth is acquisition of more to use people to get more. But God's economy is the exact opposite. God says we love people and we use possessions. There is nothing. Hear me. There is nothing inherently evil about money. Money is not a bad thing. It is neutral. It is a tool. It is a a tool to be used. We need money. We need possessions to live this life. But money and possessions are utilitarian. They have a job to do. They are not to be loved or worshipped. And in the wilderness, God teaches Israel, to get their economic philosophy right. Don't organize your life around uh, just getting more and getting more possessions and and getting wealth. Instead, organize your life around these two truths. God can provide and God will provide. God can provide and God will provide. They learned the lesson when they tried to revert back to what they learned in Egypt. Remember, God gave them manna every morning. It fell in the dew and it was on the surface of the earth and they would go and collect it. Y'all remember this? this in the scripture and what would happen he said you can go and get enough for one day and every day there'll be manna there for you he said but if you start to say you know what i'm going to get a little bit extra i want to have a little bit more than my neighbor does and if you collect too much that day you'll find that the next day it'll grow foul and it'll breed worms and it'll become corrupted he's teaching them he says don't go back to the greed and the fear of egypt thinking there won't be enough for tomorrow because if you do If you you allow that greed and fear to take over, it's going to breed worms. It's going to get foul. It's going to become corrupted. When we try to reach for more than what God provides, it turns foul. It breeds worms. And it's not good for us. So the whole earth belongs to the Lord. God's economy is built on trust and generosity. Pharaoh's economy says love possessions and use people, but God says it's the exact opposite. Love people and use possessions. Look at this, the fourth commandment, Exodus chapter 20, verse 8. This makes it into the top 10. Look at what God says. He says, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. You shall not do any work. You, your son, your daughter, your male or female servant, your livestock, or the alien resident in your towns, you shall not work. The Sabbath is a gift from God, to remind us to trust God and to refrain from overwork. God puts taking a break in the same list as murder. This is how seriously he takes this, this issue. The Sabbath is a gift from God to remind us to trust him and to refrain from overwork. In Egypt, when they were slaves for hundreds of years, they worked constantly, seven days a week providing and being oppressed and no rest and no pay, but being delivered from the economy of Pharaoh, one of the essential things for their formation as God's people is that they have a Sabbath, a day when they do no work and they just focus on the Lord. Remember earlier when God just gave us that word that today is not a day to focus on anything else but to focus on God? That's what we're talking about. The Sabbath alone is probably one of the most unique features about the people of Israel. No one else did anything like this. The rest of the world at this time, they're just working all the time. They're always working, trying to get more work, work, work. But God establishes this unique group of people. And he says, I'm going to teach you to trust me. And I'm going to teach you that if you give me the Sabbath, I'll provide enough for every day of the week. Check out the Further down in the list of Ten Commandments, Exodus chapter 20, verse 17. He says, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, their male or female servant, their ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. God says, in in my economy, we're going to deal with covetousness. Covetousness is a spiritual issue. In fact, it's a spiritual disease. And its primary symptom is chronic unhappiness. Most of the time when we as human beings, we're totally content with what we have. Until we see our neighbor have something different. And then we want what they have. Come on, we've all experienced this. I have experienced this. I love my truck. God gave me that truck. gave me a great deal. I love my truck. But I pass a nicer truck on the road. And I'm like, man, I wish I had that truck. I'm totally happy with one I've got until I see someone else with something different, something newer, something better. We, am I, I'm not the only one. Come on. We don't want something until we have something until someone else has it and we don't. You know, studies have found if you're truly in poverty, if you're truly poor, if you, are, if you are truly in poverty, giving more money, being given more money will make you happier. Studies have found that happiness goes up when people make it out of poverty. But once you reach an economic level where your basic needs are provided for, studies have found more money does not make you happier. That people who have just enough and people who have way more than enough, they all have the same mental health issues. They all have the same emotional issues. Everybody still has the same problems. More money will not make you happier once you've reached that level of security. But covetousness will make you believe that having more will make you happier more. And when we try to get more and then we finally do get more and we realize we're not happy, the devil lies to us and says, well, you didn't get enough and you've got to go back and get even more. And so then happiness becomes this ever elusive thing where I just keep trying to get more and I'm just get frustrated and disappointed and actually more isn't ever enough. And the entire advertising industry knows this. Their job is to get you to think I need more and they know that you think that'll make you happier to have it, but it actually doesn't make you happier. And it's this constant cycle and it will destroy your emotional and spiritual health. And God says, don't do it. Don't even get in that rat race. Don't get in that cycle. Just realize and trust and generosity. Don't go back to fear and greed. Don't go back to loving possessions and using people. Trust me, I will provide and be generous. Look at, look at this next one, a feature of God's economy. Exodus chapter 22. God says, if you lend money to my people, to the poor among you, you shall not deal with them as a creditor. You shall not exact interest from them. If you take your neighbor's cloak in pawn, you shall restore it before the sun goes down. For it may be your neighbor's only clothing to use as a cover. And in what else shall that person sleep? And if your neighbor cries out to me, I will listen, for I am compassionate. Another feature of God's economy is compassionate lending. In God's economy, Israel is forbidden from engaging in predatory lending practices. We all know if you've ever had to borrow money before, that it puts you in a vulnerable position. And God says, when you lend, be careful to not take undue advantage of the borrower for God lending money or any business transaction is never a two person transaction. It is never just the lender and the borrower. God is intimately involved in that transaction. If you call yourself one of God's children and one of God's people, he is going to get in your business And he's going to know your business practices. And he is intimately interested in how you practice your business. He will be present. He will observe. And he will hold Israel accountable if they don't practice compassion in their business practices. And God says you have to be compassionate. Why? Because you are a kingdom of priests and priests are supposed to represent God. And if I am compassionate, then you have to be compassionate because you're called to represent me. You're called to be my witness. And Israel's job is to reveal God to the world. So if he is compassionate as God's representative, they must also be compassionate. And God says, if you're not compassionate, I've got good ears. He says, if you're not compassionate, I have good listening ears and I will hear the one that you took advantage of when they call out to me. And then I'm going to come pay you a visit and I'm going to hold you accountable because what if that's all they had and you took it from them and they have nothing to to live off of. And I'm going to hold you accountable because I am compassionate. Look at Leviticus chapter 27, verse 30. All tithes from the land. Whether the seed from the ground or the fruit of the tree are the Lord's, they are holy to the Lord. A tithe. Tithe means one-tenth, ten percent. Did you know that that word was not originally a church word? Pentecostal preachers didn't make up that word. A tithe, one-tenth. Actually, in ancient agrarian culture, the tithe was another economic term. A tithe was the rent you paid to the landlord for being able to use the land to grow your food. That was how the business worked. A tithe, one-tenth of whatever the produce of the land was, the crops, the livestock, the water, whatever it was, you paid that to the landowner, and you got to keep the 90% to live off of. That's how the landowner was provided for when he rented out land, and that's how you were provided for. So if you owned the land, you didn't have to pay the tithe because it was yours. You could keep it because it was your land. But in Israel, God says it's going to be different. Because remember, the whole earth is the Lord's. Even if you own the land, it's not really your land because the whole earth is the Lord's. Even if you uh, purchased it yourself, it's still God's. And in God's economy, you recognize that anything I own, I only own as a steward, as a manager. It actually belongs to the Lord. I'm God's manager of his land because the whole earth belongs to him. And the tithe reminds Israel that the whole earth is God's. That's its job. And by returning the tithe to God, they redeem the other nine-tenths of their income from becoming an idol you want to battle idolatry you start being generous you want to battle greed you start being generous you start giving the tithe recognizes true ownership it keeps me from making my money an idol because it reminds me that my provision isn't found in the land my provision is found in god whose land it is and if you say i want it all and it becomes an idol. It begins to eclipse God. You forget about God. You begin f- to be formed in wrong ways. And then it eventually it breeds worms and it gets foul and corrupted. By giving God the first tenth, I understand that it all belongs to God. I honor God as the true landlord and he sanctifies. He sets apart the nine tenths and keeps it from becoming corrupting and breeding worms and becoming foul. Now, the secondary purpose of the tithe was to provide for the tabernacle and for the priesthood. So the tithe, it did have a utilitarian function. It provided for the ministry. It provided and funded the work of the priest and of the tabernacle. But that is never the primary role of the tithe. The primary role of the tithe is not to provide for the tabernacle or the priesthood. Its primary role is about the spiritual well-being of the people. Let me put it this way. Even if there was always an abundance for the tabernacle, even if the temple and the priesthood had a multi-billion dollar endowment and would never have to ask for another donation, Israel would still be required to tithe because the tithe isn't about the tabernacle. The tithe is about you and your house. Just a few more. Deuteronomy 15.1. Look at this one. Every seventh year you shall grant a remission of debts. In God's economy, debt cancellation was a major feature. Every seven years, all debts were canceled. Nothing like this ever happened in Pharaoh's economy, I guarantee you. Actually, we read in Genesis 47 that the way Pharaoh became Pharaoh and owned all the land was he took advantage of people in debt during a famine. Your Bible says that. It tells you exactly how it happened. Genesis 47. He got all of his wealth by exploiting people in their debt. During a time of famine and hunger, Pharaoh took advantage of the debts of people, and he was no longer just a political leader, but he ended up owning literally all the land in Egypt. And in the Bible, the cancellation of debt is closely connected with the idea of forgiveness. God sees refusing to cancel debt as the same as refusing to forgive. And we see how that works if you refuse to give. Jesus says, then God won't forgive you. It's interesting. We pray the Lord's Prayer. Most of us learned it growing up. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. You know, actually, a more accurate translation of that verse is forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Debt cancellation. Deuteronomy 15, verse 7. Look at this one. If there is among you anyone in need, a member of your community in any of your towns within the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted toward your needy neighbor. You should rather open your hand willingly lending enough to meet the need, whatever it may be. Be careful that you do not entertain a mean thought, thinking the seventh year the remission is near and therefore view your needy neighbor with hostility and give nothing. Your neighbor might cry to the Lord against you and you would incur guilt. Give liberally. Y'all thought that was a cuss word. It's in the Bible. Give liberally and be ungrudging when you do so. For on this, this account, the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in all that you undertake. Since there will never cease to be some need on the earth, I therefore command you, open your hand to the poor and needy in your land. God's economy is an economy of generosity. In the kingdom, generosity is not an option. It's a commandment. Don't be hard-hearted. Don't be tight-fisted. Open your hand. Give liberally. Remember, Israel is called to be a kingdom of priests, called to represent and reveal God to the rest of the world. And God is a generous God. We'll try that one again. Remember, Israel is called to be a kingdom of priests. They are called to represent and reveal the heart of God to the world, and God is a generous God. Come on. So Israel is called to be generous to accurately represent the God that they worship. God is saying, I want my people of kings and priests to show and demonstrate my generosity to the world by giving liberally and not being tight-fisted or hard-hearted. Leviticus 27, verse 24, look at this one. In the year of Jubilee, the field shall return to the one from whom it was bought who's holding the land is. The year of Jubilee. Every seventh year, debt is canceled. We saw that one. And then every 50th year, all real estate is restored to the original family owners. There's a reset in Israel every 50 years of all land goes back to the family farm, goes back to the family. Everybody gets what God originally gave them. Nothing like this happened in Pharaoh's economy. Remember, Pharaoh bought up all the land during that famine, and he literally owned everything, and he wasn't going to give it up. It's how he enslaved people. It's how he got all of his wealth and power. And God didn't want that kind of behavior in his priestly kingdom, so God gave them the jubilee, and its purpose Was to prevent a minority of super rich taking advantage of a permanent lower class. Now, y'all are going to think I'm a communist or a liberal for saying that, but your Bible said it. His job every 50 years was a reset to keep the super rich from permanently ruling over a lower class. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 11. Take care. That you do not forget the Lord your God by failing to keep his commandments, his ordinances, his statutes, which I'm commanding you today. When you've eaten your fill and have built fine houses and live in them, and when your herds and flocks have multiplied, and your silver and gold is multiplied, and all that you have is multiplied, then do not exalt yourself, forgetting the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, who led you through the great and terrible wilderness, an arid wasteland with poisonous snakes and scorpions. He made water flow from you from, for you from flint rock, and he fed you in the wilderness with manna that your ancestors did not know, to humble you and to test you, and in the To do you good, do not say to yourself, My power and the might of my own hand have gotten me this wealth. But remember the Lord your God, for it is He who gives you the power to get wealth, so that He may confirm His covenant that He swore to your ancestors, as He is doing today. If you do forget the Lord your God and follow other gods to serve and worship them, I solemnly warn you today that you shall surely perish. God says in the kingdom economy to remember God in your prosperity. I want you to notice something about this scripture. God is not opposed to wealth and prosperity. He is not opposed to you being blessed. In fact, he wants you to be blessed. He says the day is going to come when you are wealthy, when you are prosperous, when your flocks have multiplied and your crops have multiplied. And he says, when all that happens and when all that wealth and prosperity comes, don't forget me when it happens. He's not opposed to wealth and prosperity. He wants to bless his people. He just says, don't forget how you got there. Don't forget who provided it for you. Don't forget that every piece of land you walk on is actually mine and I gave it to you. Don't forget you used to be a slave and I set you free. All you have to do if you want to be wealthy and prosperous, that's wonderful. But just make sure you put me in the proper place in your life when that wealth and prosperity comes. Now, you've seen this and you maybe lived it. You're just starting out in life. You don't have a whole lot. I know there's some faithful people in here. You were starting out in life. You didn't have a whole lot, but you tithed. You gave to God. You trusted God. You acted generously, even when you were barely just getting by. But then you finally get to a place where you're doing well. The business is making money. The farm's paying off. You get a promotion. The investments start paying off. And you've seen people do this as soon as they start doing a little bit better. They're not in church anymore. They're not serving the Lord anymore. They begin to forget about God. God says, don't do that. He says through Moses, if you forget me after I blessed you, what's going to happen? That manna is going to breed worms. It's going to turn foul. It's going to become corrupted. It's going to destroy your soul. God wants you to bless, wants you to be blessed. He wants you to be prosperous, but you have to be careful that the blessing never becomes more important than the blesser. Because then that blessing will be a curse. it will become an idol. It will eclipse God. You'll forget about God. And then all kinds of destructive things will flow into your life. But through the practices that God gave Israel, Sabbath, tithing, generosity, debt cancellation, jubilee, through those practices, God gives Israel a way to enjoy their wealth without forgetting about God, to enjoy their prosperity without making money an idol. Now, when we get to Jesus in a couple of weeks, we're going to see that Jesus says a lot about money, too. He talks a lot about how you deal with money. But you're going to find out he doesn't say much different than Moses did. That really, he just, again, calls his disciples in this new kingdom to live up to the kingdom principles of how to trust God and to live generously. And when Jesus calls us to do this, he's calling us to a place of trust and generosity. In, in Pharaoh's economy, we're always plagued by anxiety and idolatry. I'm afraid, I gotta get more, I gotta work harder, I gotta get more, there's not enough, there's I, I I'm struggling and I can't get more. And and it, it creates this anxiety. And then and now we're we're worshiping the job, or we're worshiping the paycheck, or we're worshiping the bank account instead of worshiping the one who gives us those blessings. But if we live. By the economy of God, we won't have anxiety and idolatry. We can live and experience true freedom because I can trust God. He can provide and he will provide. I've seen it myself. I I could stand up here for another 20 minutes and tell you story after story that just in three years of marriage, Katie and I have seen the generosity of God in our lives and the provision of God. He'll provide for you. He'll take care of you. But he'll never bless idolatry. He'll never bless making money an idol, but he will bless you if you worship him and you live by these kingdom principles.